step back out, you are now back in Russia. It's a, it's a really neat concept, and I want you to have that concept of, of an embassy like that in mind where this is a country, and now this is a different country. It's that demarcated. Because in the Old Testament, the best analogy or metaphor we have to understanding how God's presence worked in the Old Testament is the idea of an embassy. The temple in the Old Testament was where God purposely came down and said, here is where I meet with my people. If you wanted to go into God's presence during the Old Testament times, you had to go to the temple. Now, yes, if you were outside in the fields, you could pray. You could recite some Torah you'd memorized because you probably weren't literate to read it. You could sing some psalms or whatever you want to do. But if you actually wanted to worship in God's presence, you had to go to the temple because that's the only place where God was. We need to keep things like that in mind as we think of the Old Testament, and especially this psalm in particular, because that's part of the reason that they're even going to Jerusalem to begin with. Now, the other thing to help us understand this psalm specifically is this. I want you to imagine now, let's try to get our mindset into that where God's in a specific place only. I want you to imagine that that place If you wanted to worship in God's presence, if you really wanted to connect with him, you had to pack your stuff and you had to hike it down the path here and you had to go to downtown Columbia because that's the only place God lived. The seat of government was also the seat of religion, we'll call it. And that's what Jerusalem was to the Old Testament believer. It was where the government was, and it was where God was in a way that you and I have a hard time relating to as New Testament believers who through the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit is now in us in a way he was not with the Old Testament believers. It's hard for us to get our mind around that, but I want you to think about that, that you actually had to go, and that is where God was. If you can get your mind wrapped around that, we'll have a grasp together on Psalm 122, and it'll make understanding it easier. So if you would, let's look together at Psalm 122. This is God's Word. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So this is God's word. So as we've journeyed through these psalms of ascent together, I want you to try to remember where we've been and how they kind of fit together. Note the logic of the order here. Psalm 120, we saw a couple weeks ago, gets us to cease squatting in the front yard of the world and to stand up and get ourselves back on this pilgrim path. Psalm 121 then assures us of God's help and protection on that path. And now Psalm 122 rejoices at the destination, rejoices to be at the place where God is, and rejoices that this is where God meets his people. Because after all, that's the point. Why in the world make this trek up to Jerusalem? 
because that's where God was, and we want His presence to worship Him. So I want to give you kind of a a theme for today's sermon, something to hang your hat on. Maybe at lunch today you're talking about this or family worship throughout the week. Here's where we're going this morning. We rejoice at God's call to worship because we were made to be a peaceful community. God calls us together in His presence to worship because we were made to be a peaceful community together. Because deep down, most of us, all of us, want to be part of a team. We want to be part of a peaceful, unified, thriving church And this psalm shows that the key to that is found in worship. So let's look at this together. The psalm starts out with rejoicing at God's presence. So the psalmist has made the journey to Jerusalem. He's gotten there. He's made it that, that, that ascent up to Jerusalem. And he looks back to the very beginning and he says, Man, I rejoiced when they said, let's go to God's house. Let's go to the temple to be with God's people. See, the reason he rejoices is to worship God with God's people. Now, we're reading this from the vantage point of the cross, I know, as New Testament believers. But hear this and understand this, that the church of Jesus Christ is what Jerusalem was for them. The presence of God, the people of God, connecting with God, having a way to be with God in relationship. All those promises about Jerusalem, God's presence, God's mediation, the fulfillment of worship. The New Testament has that for us through Jesus Christ. And the psalmist rejoices because that's what he had through Jerusalem. Oh, dear flock, we should have the same joy at coming together in church as this psalmist has to come together to Jerusalem. And then as their journey comes to an end in verse 2, he says, wow, we're actually standing in Jerusalem. We're here. We made it. You can almost hear the sigh of relief as he's done it. Boys and girls, I want you to get this. So look with me at your verse 1. Here is what he's saying to us today. He says this. He says, I was so happy when they said it's time to go to church. Now, boys and girls, that's not really realistic for us, is it? That's not always true for us, is it? We like to sleep in on Sundays sometimes, don't we? But see, we should all ask ourselves, what is the difference between this psalmist who has that joy and us? Think about what we have in Christ. No ancient Israelite should be more joyful, should have more zeal to worship our God than Christians today. We have Christ. We have the one that the Old Testament hinted about, that this psalmist dreamed could maybe possibly be true. Someday, we have seen that God is true to His promises. He did bring the Redeemer. He did defeat sin. He did defeat death. He is available to us by faith. Our zeal should be way more than these Old Testament believers. But the question is, why isn't it? Now, it does no good for you to feel guilty and to feel sorry for yourselves. That's not the point of these questions. I mean, we're on the right track by being here, right? I, mean, I am quite literally preaching to the choir here because you're here to worship. Because everyone worships ultimately what they want, and so you want to be here. But if we're candid with ourselves and with each other, we don't have that joy that verse 1 has to come to church. And the reason we don't is because of the blessing that we have of having God with us wherever we go by the Holy Spirit. 
Worship doesn't cost us anything. We don't have the zeal because we don't have to work that hard to get there. I mean, coming to worship is easy. It's free. We don't have to pack and travel and make sure the home is okay and make this trek and bring a significant part of our wealth to give as part uh, to worship. We don't have to do all that. Getting to worship was a big, expensive deal. And let's be, again, candid with ourselves. When something doesn't cost us much, when we become used to it, our tendency is not to value it, right? We do that. We do that in our relationships. We do that with our church. We do that with our Lord. I want to give you an example of how this could be so different. In Scotland in the 17th century was a time of turmoil and upheaval and just nasty stuff. 1680 to 1688, and I know most of you know about your Scottish history from the 1680s, but for those of you who don't, let me just refresh just a little bit. Um, Presbyterianism was born in Scotland, and from 1680 to 1688, there's lots of historical things happening, but to sum it all up, it was bad to be a Presbyterian in Scotland. It's actually called in their history books the killing times. It was bad. Presbyterians were hunted down, they were imprisoned, they were tortured. They were murdered. It was illegal for them to gather together in churches. And so they would gather together in the mountains, and they would worship the Lord every Sabbath day. And the government knew this, and the government was always trying to hunt them down. They say, we know these Presbyterians. They're going to be in church on the Lord's Day twice. Let's go. We, we know they are, so we know when. Let's just go find the where. And they were always hunting for them. And so they would gather in these things that are called conventicles. And they, in these conventicles, they would do what we're doing. They would gather out, and they would do weird things in their worship. They would do things like they would have a hymn of praise, and then they would have a call to worship, and then they would have an invocation, and then they would sing a psalm, and then they would have one of the people pray over them. Then they would read a section from their Bible. They would take tithes and offerings. They would sing some more songs. They would confess their sins, and then they would have open-air preaching, you know, weird Presbyterian stuff. And it was some of the most robust and vibrant worship in the history of Presbyterianism. They would come with joy twice on the Sabbath to worship God for the gospel. I mean, if they were discovered, notice up, up on the hill there, I guess I should say, notice up on the hill there, they have guards with guns because they are Presbyterians. Um, they do believe in returning fire. They would, they would try to save themselves, but they would still there under that fear. They were there. Sabbath after Sabbath, they would gather. Even though if the soldiers showed up, that minister right there would be tortured to death. Most of those people there would be captured. If they weren't killed, their property would be taken away from them. Their children would be imprisoned. I mean, it was, it was bad. It cost them so much, and yet they came with joy and with zeal. You see, dear flock, our, our worship doesn't cost us anything, does it? And like most things in our life that don't cost us anything... We take it for granted. We don't value it. And so we get bored. And we come to it and say, entertain me or I won't value you. And I will be the first to admit to you that the things we do is not very entertaining. And we don't try to make it entertaining. I'm sorry. But instead of God bringing persecution to us, why don't we remember the value of what we do here? 
When we gather as the body of Christ, when God calls us to worship, God himself comes in a special way at his gathered people in worship. When Christ is preached, when the sacraments are rightly administered, when church discipline takes place, these are called the marks of a true church, and God is there in a special way that he's not when we're not together. We are Jerusalem. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence here in public worship, ask the Lord right now to give you a renewed zeal to remind your heart of the value of public worship. And you will come with zeal because we should rejoice that God calls us to worship him because we were made to be part of this peaceful community. And he makes us that community through his presence with us in worship. The next thing this psalm shows us is that there's unity And there's peace in God's presence. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. See what the psalmist says. He says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So he's looking at it, it appears almost that he's talking about the architecture of the city being so tightly together, but he's really rejoicing in the unity of the people. I mean, they were a tribal people, remember that. They were, and their loyalties were primarily to their tribes. These tribes did fight each other. All under the same covenant, they still got, didn't get along. But these tribes, they came together in unity to worship their God. They came to Jerusalem as one, and that, that unity makes the psalmist rejoice. I mean, that's what the unity of the church is supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to look like. We're all unified together under God's covenant love. Not uniformity. Of course we have differences. But our hearts come together as one. I mean, think about it. I mean, we've got the Carolina people here. And we've got the Clemson people here, right? And in spite of that rivalry, y'all can come together and worship under Jesus Christ. It's a good thing. And and then, you know, the Baylor ones of us who are ranked higher than both of y'all, we can still worship with you too, you know? It's fine. And then we've got that one couple who likes Alabama. And they'll come down on high, you know, to... Slum with the rest of us football people. But those kind of rivalries, I mean, seriously, we, we laugh, but that tribalism was intense in ancient Israel. And here they come together to worship their God together. And the psalmist says, look at this unity. This is great. And we should have that. And they come together, why? Because God commands it. I love how verse 4 does say, and they just felt like coming, and they wanted to be together, and so they came. no. Most of the time, they probably didn't want to take this trip, but God commanded it, and so they went to worship him. This is also a very clear rejection of the individualistic view of salvation and worship. It says, well, I don't need to get part of the church. I can, I can just worship at home. I can go on a nature walk and worship God, and that may all be true, but that is not public worship on the Lord's day as is commanded and shown in both Testaments. I'm sorry this is going to anger some of you, but me... My Bible and my latte is not the people of God. This is the people of God gathered together on worship on the Sabbath. But look what else the psalmist rejoices in. And this one's great. This one's going to blow our mind. Look with me at verse 5. He says this. He says, There the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This is the court system. This is where you came and you would say, Excuse me, um, Shepherd Bill here came over onto my land last Tuesday and he watered his flocks from my well 
and he has not compensated me for that water, I demand justice. Th- that kind of nitty-gritty stuff of life, this is where they came to the throne and said, give me justice. Instead of having chaos and war, instead of, well, this guy's going to steal from me, I'm going to go kill his family. No, God's people said, God will give us justice. We will take our problem to the king and to his thrones, his you know, other courts, and we will get justice. The psalmist rejoices over the court system because it was the basis of their unity. You see, in a way that our culture just has, doesn't even understand, the psalmist rejoices, says, this is where God's ordained leaders rule us and make decisions for us. And he rejoices in that. This is the civil and the religious court system. Starting with Moses and going through the Davidic kings, there was this system of judgment to rule the people. This is why even today the church is ruled by a court called the session. Not the pastor, not committees, but a court. The session is the way that administers justice to God's people in their life. And the psalmist rejoices that God has ordained and installed leaders like that. I know it seems remarkably self-serving for me to say it. I know. I didn't write verse 5. It's already there. But we should all rejoice to have God's ordained leaders in our life because he's given us that for unity. Which is why gossip is such a sin in Scripture. Instead of rejoicing at the unity of God's people, And rejoicing at God's ordained leadership, the gossiper waves a finger in God's face and says, you should have consulted me before you got these people in charge. I would have done it differently. And that's why it's a heinous form of rebellion. It destroys unity. But in worship, that selfishness is set aside and we see that God judges us through his word and we submit to that. And God blesses that unity that submission and we can have peace with each other when we submit to him oh this was daily this was practical this is the stuff of monday through saturday that brings unity not the stuff of public worship but see real life monday through saturday is informed by what happens in public worship because we come and we sit under god's word and he changes us more and more to be like him and his son I want everybody to get this, so let's all look together at the kids. Uh, cha- uh, verse 5, please, says this. This is the place where God helps us in our daily life. Do you believe that? That's the promise of this psalm, that right here, what we do this hour actually helps us Monday through Saturday, because ultimately, if we love and trust God, we will rejoice at what he does for us in worship, and we will rejoice in his leading us with his word and his leaders. You see, if we get the gospel, if we see what he has done for sinners such as us, we cannot help but rejoice at him and worship him. And in that worship, we submit to him and trust because unity and peace come through justice. God's king dispensing God's justice for God's people is a foretaste of what Jesus Christ, our great King, who sits on the throne even now, who rules His bride through His church courts. It's a foretaste of that. And Jesus Christ could only do that because first, He made His people. 
He upheld justice for his people by dying for their sins so we wouldn't have to. He took the penalty we deserved and gave us his life that we didn't deserve. And because he has done that, we can have unity together. Everyone is unified in our guilt before God. But God's people are unified because the judge came and stood in our place and took that judgment. And once we get that, we can live in peace with each other. That's why we rejoice at God's call to worship. Because we're made to be that peaceful community and he will make us that through his son. And he does it through public worship. And so that makes us want to work to maintain this community. That's the next place this psalm takes us. We see he's striving for unity and peace because of God's presence. And before we jump into this part, I've got to clear up one quick misunderstanding. It's very popular. It's very rare that you see psalms on bumper stickers, but you actually see verse 6 on bumper stickers occasionally. So we need to talk about that real quick. Everybody look with me at verse 6. Here's what it says. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Why are we to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Remember back in verse 1, he said he's rejoicing to go there. Why? Because of the house of of God. That's where he wants to go. And if you look ahead to verse 9, the end of the psalm, he says he's going to work for good. Why? For the sake of the house of the Lord our God. See, even in this psalm itself, The city is only special because of the temple. It's all about God's presence with his worshiping people through a mediator. Through them, the mediator was the priesthood and the sacrifices to usher them into God's presence. And through us, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our great mediator, is how we come into God's presence. Which means for us, and some of you are going to balk at this, The modern-day city of Jerusalem has no more to do with God or his plans than New York City or Orangeburg. Jerusalem was special because of the presence of God in his temple. And you can look this up. That presence systematically left that temple in Ezekiel chapter 11. Go read it for yourself. Never to return. And the New Testament says that Christians are what? When we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The city of Jerusalem is nothing, spiritually speaking. The church is everything. Everything Jerusalem meant for the psalmist is now in the church. Now, Jerusalem is, the, is you know, a fellow democracy. Support them if you want to. Jerusalem is a rare jewel of non-persecution for Christians in a very persecuted area. If you want to support them, support them. But don't do it because you think God has something special for Jerusalem. And then quote this verse. No. There's nothing special about that real estate. The special was the presence which we now have through Christ. That's been kind of technical, so boys and girls, I want you to look with me at your verse 6. Make sure we get this together. Here's what verse 6 says. We translate it. Pray that the church would have peace because God blesses those who love the church. That's pretty simple, isn't it, boys and girls? Just pray for the church. Pray for peace in the church. Pray that the preaching of the word, that the prayers, that the administration of the sacraments, that the session would rule well. Pray those things for the church. Because when we love God's people, God will bless us. That's what the psalmist is saying. You know, one of the reasons that we like to get distracted with the Middle East and supposed prophecy about the Middle East is it lets us read things like verse 6 and not ask the real question. 
And the real question is this, do we have that kind of passion to pray for God's people that verse 6 is calling for? Again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but we need to examine our hearts. We have passion about our favorite college teams, especially this time of year. Why don't we have that kind of passion about the Lord's church and about each other? It's a fair question, and I believe the answer is we don't really live in the reality of the gospel. Thus, we have no passion for what God has done for us in the gospel. I mean, we were sinners. We were rebels with a fist raised in God's hand, and God came down, and he pried open our fist, and he put in his gift of love. It was while we were sinners, the Bible tells us over and over, before we cleaned up our act, God came to us and forgave us of our sins through Jesus Christ. God placed his love on us because he loved us, not because he saw us and thought we were cute and cuddly and furry and just so precious. That is not the picture of Scripture. You see, in the gospel, God comes to ugly rebels like us in our sin, in our selfishness, and he gives us his righteousness anyway. He gives us the beautiful, peaceful pureness of his only son. He actually gives that to us in place of our sin. And then he takes that nasty, selfish, putrid mess, and he takes it, and he dumps it on his son, and then he crushes his own son because he hates that mess. And in that crushing, you're forgiven. That's the gospel. And when we get that, that we can be beautiful too because what Christ has done. That he's given us new life. He's given us a new community. That we're brothers and sisters. That in this life he's given us the ability to come together in public worship. When we get all that, we will rejoice and have passion for worship. And passion for each other. Once that gets, us, gets in our heart, it will drive us to passionate worship. Passionate to have peace with each other. But because we don't really have that passion, we don't connect with verse 7 that much that talks about all the security of Jerusalem. We don't connect with verse 8 that talks about our brothers that much. We just don't connect with that. But if we would get the gospel, we would have such joy at the unity of the church, at what Jesus Christ has done for us. I mean, we were meant to live in a close community with God and his people. We were meant to be part of that. I mean, Jesus Christ on his last night before his death prays that famous prayer in John 17. And he prays it for all future Christians. And he prays for two main things. He prays for unity and peace in his future church. In other words, Jesus prayed what verse 8 says to pray for. So everybody look with me at the kids' version of verse 8. Here's what it says. It says, because I love my church family, I pray for peace in the church. Because peace doesn't happen naturally. We have to work at it. And such a love has to be worked at. Which is why verse 9 comes right next. Look with me at verse 9. The regular version says this. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. See, because of God's presence, the psalmist says he will seek, he will work for, he will desire and try to make happen good for God's people. 
It's worth the effort. And so he's willing to work after, to strive towards the good of God's people. And verse 9 hits us with the point. As an, as an older generation would say, here's the rub. My dear Christians, we're consumers. We don't strive, we consume. It's in the air we breathe. We bring that mentality to the church, and so we want to plug into something already up and running and excellent. We don't want to strive to make something good or to create something from scratch. But that's what this verse calls us to do, to strive to help make something good. Let's look at the kids' version of verse 9. Maybe this will help us all understand better. It says this, Since it is the place where God meets with his people, I will work for the good of the church. See, this is the place where God comes in a special way, and so we will work to enhance this. If we're discontent, we need to look into our heart and ask a very serious question. Are we seeking the good of God's church because we love God and we love his people? Or are we seeking our own good and that's why we're discontent? So let's not leave this psalm without getting to the main message to us. We'll wrap up with this. I want to see how Jesus used this psalm himself. As Jesus Christ himself is making one of his many ascents to Jerusalem, as he has been singing these psalms with his disciples as an adult during his public ministry, that he learned as a child with his parents making the same trip, on one of these trips in Luke chapter 19, as he makes the corner and he sees Jerusalem with Psalm 122 in the background, he says, and when he drew near and draw the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I want you to contrast Jesus Christ weeping over the city of Jerusalem, the city that would reject and lynch him. And contrast that with the psalmist's joy for Jerusalem. How do we have that kind of enthusiasm and joy? Is the question of this psalm. And the answer is by living in the reality of the gospel that Jesus Christ earned by going to Jerusalem. The psalmist knew he was a sinner. He lived under the law of Moses, which nobody actually thought they could obey. Every day he was reminded of his failures before a holy God because of the law of Moses. And that constant reminder of his inability to earn God's favor did not drive him to despair, did not drive him to hate God. It drove him to joyful worship of the holy God who, in spite of the psalmist's failures, still met him in grace in the temple and said, Come. He could go into God's very presence and receive grace in spite of those daily failures. You see, an, an awareness of our inability to earn God's love, an awareness of our failures to earn God's love should drive us deeper into the de desire to worship Him, should drive us deeper into appreciation for the worth of the gospel. Because through Jesus Christ's work, we have His presence his love has been put on us while we were sinners. How can we not worship and adore Him unless we just don't believe it? And it, it is only because we are not 
desperate for God's mercy in the gospel that, to use the language of a current generation, we are meh about public worship, meh about being with God's people, and we're meh about God himself. But see, this type of joy in Psalm 122, it is yours for the taking. It is yours. This type of security, this type of community is available through a robust living faith in Jesus Christ. It's yours for the taking. Simply repent of looking to your own needs. Simply repent of putting yourself first and tell God you're sorry and yet again believe the gospel. And I don't care if you've done that years ago or if you've never done that. We all need every day to repent and believe the gospel and let the value and worth of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. If you want this kind of joy, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together.